So we're here today, and even though my shirt is untucked and my sleeves are rolled up, it's still Easter, right? I didn't, I mean, the reality is we live every day now in light of a perpetual Easter, and we will celebrate that until Christ returns. And then Easter will get really phenomenal because what's our faith will become sight. So we of all people have reason to celebrate, right? No, 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 no. Don't you guys remember what we talked about last week? We have reason to celebrate, right? Amen. That's right. We do. We, we of all people, when we hear and agree and affirm the truths of Christ, have the most reason to speak up and say, Amen. Ah, yeah, see, we're working on it. I told you last week we we're becoming interactive a little bit. Um, now, we won't get crazy because, come on, we're not going to go too far. But seriously, I mean, because Christ is risen, we have all the reason in the world to be here this morning listening to his word, turning off our notifications so that if you're following along on a smart device, you're not bothered by things popping up and telling you something has happened. I said that to the first service, and then in the middle of the service, my notifications went off. The irony of it all. Um, so this time, I've promised I have turned off my notifications this is our Lord's time. This is time for his church to gather and celebrate the reality that we live in light of a risen Savior with the hope of a Savior who will return. And so even though the words uh, of this passage will begin heavy, we won't stay there because our Savior is alive and he has promised to come and get us. We are in Luke chapter 13 today, verses 1 through 9. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you uh, that... These words from our Savior are worth reading and following along with. We'll read the whole thing through and we'll come back and kind of walk through it uh, verse by verse. Beginning in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they, <clears throat> because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you also, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who were in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit he came seeking fruit, and on it found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So here we are, verse 1, there's thousands of people have gathered. Jesus is, I mean, he is, a, uh, he is a revolutionary type of leader. And by this point, people are not just gathering because they're figuring him out. They're gathering to prove him wrong. And, and, and thousands of people have, have gathered around him. In fact, at the beginning of Luke chapter 12, uh, should be about verse 1, it tells us that there were myriads or there were thousands upon thousands of people gathered so many people that they were trampling one another, like they were being so selfish about seeing Jesus, about getting close to Jesus, that they were actually stepping on one another, trampling on one another to get close to him, to be able to hear him. 
And as he began to teach, he taught his followers how they were to live. And he taught them and he showed them how they were to live by contrasting how those that would reject him were living. In a very confrontational way. They're like, this is the wrong way. You need to do it the right way. Like, this is the right way. They're doing it wrong. And in, in, in the last passage we studied from Luke, chapter 12, verses 49 through 59, he brings that division down front and center, and he says, look, the gospel, my mission, my message divides. It divides people out of the world as it unites them together. So it pulls people out of the world. It divides them from those who are lost and who are fallen, who are, who are under condemnation. It divides them out and makes them one people. And so there's this division that's wrought because of living in a fallen, cursed world. There's this division that's wrought. <clears throat> and, and he is the very center of that. What you do with Jesus, how you view him, what, whether you follow him or reject him is the very center of that. Now, as he taught that, he didn't just say it and then, and, and then just blatantly, like, as if he didn't care, shut up and walk away. He actually, as he said that to his disciples, turned and looked evangelistically and began to speak to the crowds and, and began to call them to be ready, to get prepared. This division is an indication that something more is coming. Get ready. And then he teaches, in the closing of chapter 12, he teaches this parable about not waiting until they're facing their accuser in the courtroom. Settle up on the way. When you're standing in the courtroom, it's too late. And so we, we know that, that that's really indicative of the, that the moment we enter death, the moment we die, it's too late. Let's settle up with our accuser. He is right. We are guilty. Settle up with him on the way. In the midst of this teaching, Jesus is either interrupted or this is a response that's given. In fact, some people, some, some people struggle. In verse 1, you, you hear them bring up this suffering or this, this tragic event of the Galileans who suffered under Pilate's hand. Some people believe that this was people that were just that, that were uh, trying to trip Jesus up, trying to show that he had a greater affinity or affiliation with Rome. And so they were going to present this problem and he was going to take Pilate's side. Some people think that this was like the, the, the brother earlier in the midst of Jesus' teaching who had interrupted and demanded that Jesus respond and do the thing that he said that he should do. His brother, his brother was holding some of the inheritance from him, and he wanted his inheritance, and he said, Jesus, you, you fix this problem. Some people think it was an interruption like that. We, we don't know exactly what it was that, 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 these people, that motivated these people to speak out and to bring this suffering, what we can be sure of when they talked about these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, what we can be sure of, they weren't ready for Jesus' answer. In fact, Jesus' answer is very direct, very, very confrontational in their face. It's not the picture of Jesus we get very often, but it's a picture of Jesus that's been shown over and over through this series of teaching, beginning back at chapter 12, verse 1. In fact, he didn't even speak about the Galileans, or their plight. He actually confronted them and what they believed was going on. And you can see it in verse 2. He says, Do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And he's addressing something. He's addressing the common view in that day that people suffered because they did evil. 
It's this very karmic view. We still struggle with it today. It still rules in many ways in our world today. You do bad, you get bad. You do good, you get good. You deserve good things by doing good things. And you deserve bad things by doing bad things. Jesus is about to undermine that teaching. And he doesn't just stop. He doesn't just stop at this one instant, this point where they're suffering at the hands of another person. He brings out another current event. Maybe he sound, maybe, maybe it's, you know, somebody, they're, they're seeing it in their news feed on Facebook. And he says, well, hey, what, what about these other people at the, at the uh, Tower of Siloam? It's not, just, it's not just people doing evil that cause suffering, but, but hey, what about accidents? Things that are outside of anybody's control, really. What about, what about those things? You know, a tower just falls and kills people. It's not just Galileans that are suffering. What about these people in Jerusalem, these Jewish people, these, these Judeans? People living in Jerusalem who have suffered and died because a tower fell on them. Are, are they greater offenders? This is perspective. That these very noble people, these people who were living moral and upright lives by every estimation and measurement of their own, assumed that these people were suffering and they were dying tragic deaths because they were evil. They were more evil than everyone else. And I must not be dying a tragic death because I am doing good things in front of my father. I have earned my way before him. I have earned his favor upon me. And Jesus answers that in both circumstances with the exact same sentence. No. No. In fact, if you do not repent, you all will likewise perish. And so Jesus, in saying that, does a three, there's three things I want to highlight that he does here. There's three things I want to point out that he does here. First, he details or deals with a mistaken view of suffering and dying. These people were wrong. And they're, 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 I mean, they come by it somewhat innocently, I guess, because of their fallen nature and their traditions of their fathers. This view had been being held by Jewish people for, for some time. And, and even in the scriptures, you see evidence of that. Consider Job, for instance. Job loses everything that he had in the world except his wife. And then his wife comes out and nags him and says, curse God and die. And you think... Man, he might be better off without her too, right? She didn't make it easy on him. He's sitting in a heap of ashes with sores all over his body, suffering the loss of his children, suffering the loss of every material thing he owned, and his wife comes and says, curse God and die. Well, thanks. It's funny, I think it's ironic that the Lord left her in his life, but he also left some friends in his life who came to him and said, Job, what did you do wrong? What did you do to make God mad? You have to ascend in some great way, some massive way. You did something, and Job's like, no, I didn't. Why, God? Why am I suffering this way? I don't, why? At the end of Job, God confronts Job and his questions about why. He doesn't really get a clear answer, except that God is sovereign. Who are you? 
to challenge me. Put your pants on. Stand up like a man. I'm going to deal with you. And I think in that moment, Job's feeling less like a man than he had ever felt like in his life. But when it's all said and done, not only did Job get confronted and called to repentance, every one of his friends were condemned, and Job had to make a sacrifice on their behalf because of their sin. Because of their mistaken, fallen view that Job must have been some great sinner, some sinner greater than they, because he was suffering. We deal with this still today. Whether it's a tragedy about wars and murders and things like that, or whether it's some natural disaster that's outside of anybody's control, we still hold this view today. Let me just paint a picture, share a more current event in which we saw this play out. Back in 2005, Hurricane Katrina strikes the Gulf Coast, one of the biggest, nastiest hurricanes that has ever struck uh, the United States. Over 90,000 square miles was, in, or not over, but approximately 90,000 miles square miles was impacted by the storm. Nearly 2,000 people were killed. New Orleans becomes the focus of the devastation because of the amount of flooding and just the disaster that happened within that city. There was a, a one, one place I read as I just was reading up on it again. One place I read said that there was water 20 feet high above the houses. Like, I mean, literally most of the city sits below sea level by about six feet. But the flood was so devastating that there was points of New Orleans that were 20 feet underwater. That's how bad it flooded. Over, or about 80% of the city flooded. And here's what I heard from Christian, quote, Christian folks in Springfield, Missouri. You know, New Orleans is a pretty sinful city. God's just judging them for their sin. A self-righteous jerk can say something about something so devastating. You know, that stuff doesn't happen in Missouri because we're not as sinful as New Orleans. Jesus says, no. Absolutely not. You have a fallen, mistaken view of suffering and you have an inflated self, sense of self-righteousness. No. If you do not repent, you all likewise will perish, he says. He won't agree with them. But he will call them to repent. The second thing I want you to see that he does out of this, out of this event, of these two events that he draws out, is that he shows them. He shows them in saying that if you don't repent, you will all likewise perish. There's a reality that he brings the, the, the reality of sin and suffering to every person who has ever lived. Not some of you. All. Of you. This is a difficult, diff, diff, difficult subject, difficult topic, difficult to consider. There's a reality that sin and suffering exist in this world not because God has quit on us or not because God doesn't care about us or not because God is not powerful or sovereign enough. Sin and suffering exist in, or I'm sorry, suffering and death exist in this world because sin exists in this world. God is not responsible. The question is not to ask where God was. 
It exists because, because we have sinned and rebelled against God. We can see this across the scope of Scripture. God created. Everything was, per- everything was harmonious. Everything was, was as it was intended to be. He comes to the seventh day and he sees that everything is good. And he rests. And man and woman were in this garden in which they were provided for completely holy, without need. There was nothing that they were lacking. They had been provided for abundantly. And they had no stain of sin. And because of that, they walked in the presence of God in the cool of the day. They would walk with him in the garden. There was no pain, no hurt, no suffering. And death had no place in his creation except as a result of a rebellion. They were given every tree, every plant, all the fruit to eat except for one. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. The only place death had in the created order that God had put together and saw as good was as the result of a rebellious act on the part of man and woman. And in this place of completion, of abundance, they saw this one thing that they couldn't have. And they took it. And he came to them. And in that moment, he could have crushed them. By all standards, I mean, we talked about this even last week, by all rights, he could have killed them in that moment. As you know, they, they died spiritually. There was a separation that occurred. But I think standing in the garden, hearing God's commands and hearing the response that was to come, I don't think they thought, well, we don't want to die spiritually, so we won't eat the fruit. I don't think they thought of a spiritual death. I think when they heard God say, if you eat the fruit, you're going to die, I think they understood that to me. You're going to quit breathing. You're going to quit living. Now, as the, as the scriptures unfold, as the work of the gospel continues throughout the, the history of redemption, we can see the spiritual death that took place. But they didn't die. In a physical way, did they? But death still entered. You see, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God, they didn't die immediately physical deaths. But they suddenly saw their sin ways that they had never seen it before. That in chapter 2, they're naked without shame in the garden, enjoying the coolness of the garden with the Father. And in the curse... And in the results of their sin, they begin to see each other as naked. And they start to make clothes out of leaves. I, I, I point this out. Every time I'm in Africa and we're, we're sitting under the tree sharing the gospel with these people, we, we come to this place because you don't share the gospel inside buildings in Africa. It's too hot. You're always sitting under the trees. So sitting under these trees and, and you get to this point in the story where you talk about Adam and Eve having created clothes out of leaves. And you, and you point up and you're like, can you imagine making clothes out of these leaves? 
Like, what would happen? It wouldn't work. You'd always be making clothes. Like, you wouldn't have time to go to the well because you've got to make more clothes. You wouldn't have time to go hunting for your food because you've got to make clothes. You, gotta, you, you, you couldn't cook a dinner for your family because you've got to make clothes. Your whole life would be consumed with the making of clothes to cover the effects of your sin. God knew that. So God killed an animal. He made clothes for Adam and Eve to cover the effects of their sin. And he allowed them to live under a curse. But he allowed them to live at the expense of an animal that he killed. Death entered the world because of their sin. And that's not the only place we see that death enters the world at the moment of sin. As a result of their sin, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's called the proto-evangel... I'm not going to say it. Proto-evangel. I'll just say it like that. It's the first time the gospel is proclaimed in in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is pronouncing the curse. He's saying, you deserve what you get. And here's what you get. And he's speaking to the serpent in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Like, I'm starting this war, not you. I'm putting the enmity there. I'm the one going to battle with you. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You need to hear this. This is, this is not just a, a tap on the head. This is a death blow. He's going to crush his head and you shall bruise his heel. Same kind of language. This is a death blow, but it's a much different part of the body, much different picture of death. And with 2020 hindsight, we can look back and we can see now through the pages of scripture, the history of redemption, we can see how this worked out on the cross, how Jesus came to the cross and how the serpent, how Satan struck his heel. He dealt a death blow, but that death blow was nothing in comparison to what the cross would do to him. Because in the cross and in the resurrection, Satan is condemned and all who would follow him. You see, we live now under a curse. And because we do, death is as natural in this life as breathing. It is the reality of the world we live in. But isn't it interesting that we talk about living to a ripe old age and he had a good life and but they still died. There's still judgment. There's still curse. His creation wasn't designed for death, but our sin brought it in. Our sin brings it to the forefront. And Jesus says, no, they're not more evil than you. They're not more deserving of death than you. It just so happens your judgment is waiting But death comes to everyone. Suffering and death are the realities of this fallen, cursed world in which we live. But now that we feel really good about everything, right? Like, are you feeling up? Did you 
Jesus didn't say that just simply to condemn them. He said it in order to call them to repent. You see, here's the thing. Jesus, when he confronts people and calls them to repentance, it's not about condemnation. It's about an offering of real, eternal life. In the same way that he says, if you will not repent, you will all perish. It is the same as saying, if you will repent, you will not perish. You may die. You may deal with the struggles of this life in this life, but you will not perish. You will live eternally. This is the central theme of the gospel work of his, uh, uh, of his mission and his message. He came to die on a cross in our place for our sins that we might live eternally. But if we will not repent, we will likewise perish. Said another way, if we are going to enjoy life eternally, it begins with daily living repentantly. You see, I know that this is heavy as we think about the realities of the consequences of sin. But this is worthy of cheering and rejoicing because he gives us a way to live where death will not have a hold any longer. He warns us and prepares us and he calls it repentance. And so I think you can see I think you see that this teaching, he, his, his teaching is not on suffering. His teaching is not on sin. His, his teaching is on repentance. And he tells that parable in light of demonstrating what repentance looks like and how it works itself out. And so I think if we're going to really do this passage justice, we have to understand what he means when he says repent. So for the balance of our time, that's what we're going to do. Repentance. What does it mean to repent? What is it? R. Kent Hughes calls it a change of mind that leads to action. And I, I, this, this is the perspective I've held for years. I mean, I, I've, I've held that for years, have, have kind of pushed back against some of the more current ways to de define repentance. How have you heard repentance defined? Come on. Turn from sin, right? You turn from sin and that's repentance. And, and I'm not saying that that's not repentance, what I'm saying is I don't think it does justice to the fullness of the picture of repentance and the word that's being described and being used by our Savior there. Now, I thought of it that way for years. I just always focused on the outward. It's a turning. It's a change of action. Like I quit sinning and I start doing good. And so we're always thinking about what I'm not doing anymore. But that's a focus of works. And I don't think that that's the intention of Christ here. He uses a different word. R.C. Sproul, in his little book, on it's a, there's a Crucial Question series. I would encourage you to go and read it. Crucial Questions. It deals with basic faith, basic essentials of the faith things. And in one of the books, he deals with the question, uh, what is repentance? That's all it is. It's one book about what is repentance. It's not very long. It's more like a pamphlet. In fact, I read it this week just in about, I don't know, 35, 45 minutes. Just read the whole thing as I prepared. And I really appreciated what he brought out in that because it changed my mind because I had moved from this place that was completely outward to this place where it's a change of mind that, that, that leads to a change of action. But he points out that this is not just about the knowledge that resides in our head. 
He points out in the midst of dealing with this word that is translated repentance or repent, that we're not just dealing merely with externalism, but we're dealing with the depths of the sinful heart where, where, where sin is rooted. For, for example, so he illustrates the pictures of repentance in the Old Testament as being like the, the singing of laments, like the songs of sorrow. Psalm 51, David is lamenting his sin and the tearing of clothes. And he says that that is a picture of the tearing of our souls because we recognize the offense of sin against God. That it's not just what we do on the outside, but the thoughts that we have in our mind make their way into the depths of who we are and change the way we think and believe. So that then we change our action. And then I came across in uh, my, one of my lexicons that I study from. I'm not a Greek scholar. I depend on the tools of, of, uh, of that, that other people have written, other Greek scholars have put out. And I came across this definition for the word metaneo. That's the Greek word. It just means to re reconsider, to think over things again. But they wrote this in this lexicon, to have a change of self, heart, and mind that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self, new behavior, and regret over former behavior and dispositions. So here's this idea that it's not just about the mind, it's also about the heart that then leads to a change of actions. And so taking all this into consideration, let me give you just a concise definition that I hope will prove helpful. Repentance in biblical terms. Repentance is a change of mind that redirects the affections of the heart and results in a change of action. See, it's not just information we receive. All kind of information floating around out there that, that we hear and we know, and it doesn't do a thing about how we live or act, right? Who won the Super Bowl this year? Who won? The, come on. Who? Yeah, okay. I had to ask in the first service too. I was like, I know what somebody said it. I don't hang on to that knowledge. It doesn't mean that much to me anymore. But the Patriots won, right? Isn't that right? Okay, Patriots won. Well, how does that knowledge affect how you live on a daily basis? Most of us, it doesn't. Unless you're a Patriots fan, then you're rubbing it. Who, who'd they play? Come on, who'd they play? Nobody knows in here. We're all too holy. We don't watch football. <laughs> right? We're too righteous. Who'd they play? Philadelphia. Okay, see, nobody wanted to admit that they watched the Super Bowl this year. I don't know, okay, whoever they played, if you're, if you're that fan, then it might give you a, an ability to rub it in their face. Like that would be the way it changes the way you act. All kinds of knowledge floating around out there that we do nothing with. It, hit, it, it lands in our brains and it just sits there. We do nothing with it. But, but that's not what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to information, to knowledge, to truth that sinks into us, transforms not just the way we think, but the way we feel, the desires we have for things, the inclinations of our heart, the things that we believe. We believe the Savior is risen, so we believe that there's value in sitting here, turning off our notifications, and listening to the word being preached. And see, it changes the way we think, and it finds its way down into our heart, that it changes the very essence of our being, the very core of our identity, and changes us so deeply that it can't help but change the way we act. How different is this than what we have always been taught about repentance? Repentance is a change of action because the truth has changed you from the inside out. 
It affects both our, our, every part of us. Our head, it comes in. It, it affects our heart. It changes our beliefs and our values so that our hands begin to do different things, that we give our energy and our efforts to different things. But while I think this is a good definition, I think it's too important. It's vital to the receiving and enjoying of eternal life. I think we've got to deal with it even further. I, can't, I don't think just having a definition is enough. So what is it? Let's start with what it isn't. Repentance is not only feeling sorry for your sin. You know, David was sorry, David, David was sorry for his sin, but we really know he was sorry for his sin because he got caught. Right? Like he was he was adulterating on this man's with this man's wife, and 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 the man ends up find, coming home and he can't get rid of him. He says, Hey, take him out, make sure he gets killed in battle. Seemed fine until Nathan shows up, the prophet, and says, hey, David, you know what? God knows what's happened. <gasps> oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. So he's sorry for his sin, and he pins Psalm 51, but in the midst of Psalm 51, we see he's not just simply sorry for his sin. His soul is torn over it. He recognizes the consequence and the offense against God in it. So yes, getting caught and feeling sorry, yeah, that's part of it, but that's the beginning. The one peace. Repentance is not only feeling sorry for our sin. It may start there, but it doesn't stay there. Repentance is not paying penance for our sin. This is Roman Catholic teaching. If you're going to say that you're repentant, then you will be doing something to pay penance, to make up for, to, to in some way work your way back into the good graces of God. That's a lie. The works will come out of repentance as a result of his good work through repentance. But those good works are never the reason we can stand with confidence in the throne room of heaven. Repentance is not a work that saves us. This is not by us, by our might, with our own power, doing something to save ourselves. We'll deal with it a little more fully in a minute, fully in a minute. But you need to know repentance is not you just being sorry and working up the gumption within yourself to do the right things instead of the wrong things. For too long the church has taught people that and it has failed them. Repentance is not living perfect. Listen, there is a reality that even as a repentant person, your struggle with the flesh and sin continues. Certainly, you'll see the reality. You'll see the truth. You'll, you'll know that it's destructive, that it's deceptive, that it's wrong. And you'll desire more fully the things of God. We deal with this in counseling situations, especially between couples, all the time. This person sinned against me, and now they're not living up to my expectation. They must not be repentant. Well, if you were really repentant, you wouldn't continue to sin. How's that working for you? Right? I mean, that's the question you ask the person that says that. How's that working for you? If that's our standard... Well, we're not living repentantly according to our own definition. 
Repentance is not being done with the flesh. But it is a realization that the flesh leads to death. So we know what it isn't. What is it? We've got a definition. We understand practically how it plays out, how it shouldn't or doesn't play out. What it is then. Let me, let me just hit these. Repentance is the twin grace of its brother, faith. Like, we're not talking about another thing that you add to the salvation process. We're not saying, okay, well, there's faith and there's repentance, and you got to get them both. You got to figure out both of them. Yes, to some degree we are, but they are not separate issues. I've shared this quote with you before. I appreciate it as it pertains to repentance and faith. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, We cannot separate turning from sin in repentance and coming to Christ in faith. They describe the same person in the same action, but from different perspectives. In one instance, this is repentance, in one instance, the person is viewed in relation to sin. In the other, faith, in the other, the person is viewed in relation to the Lord Jesus. But the individual who trusts in Christ simultaneously turns away from sin in believing in Christ, in believing, he repents, and in repenting, he believes. I would, I, would, I would just play this out this way. Faith and repentance, they always go together. Repentance sees the error. Faith clings to the answer. Repentance sees the disease. Faith clings to the cure. Repentance holds a proper view of the lies that we have believed, while faith believes the truth that Jesus has revealed. Repentance sees the destructive nature of sin and rebellion against God, while faith strives to live in obedience to God's command. When I say repent, when Jesus is saying repent, that's even better than me, because I mean, he's, well, he's Jesus. When he says repent, he's calling you to believe. It's the same thing from different perspectives. Let me just pull it out like this. Nathan, come up here. I don't know your name. I don't remember your name. Can you stand right here for me? Can you just stand right here? So Nathan, you got to play sin. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that to somebody I can't remember his name. So <clears throat> here's the reality. I can't at the same, I, I, I can't without turning from sin, or I can't turn to salvation without turning away from sin. I see the lies. I see the deception. I see the destruction. I understand what it's leading me to. I understand that I'll perish if this is my life. But I've heard truth. I've been shown that there's something better. And instead of looking at this and walking towards it, I can't help but long for this. And see, this repentance, this new faith sees the truth. It understands the reward. It gives the promises of all that's to come. And because I'm able to make it happen in my mind, because I'm able to understand it in my mind, it changes the depths of my heart. And it leads me away from sin so that I can turn to Christ and his salvation. I can't possibly continue this way if I'm going this way. But I can't go this way if I won't give up this way. That's repentance. And it's twin grace of faith. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Sorry for pointing you out. I apologize. That's the idea. They go together. They are inseparable. And second, I would say repentance together with faith is the proper response to God's gracious gospel. Again, a central message to the gospel. This, this is the central message or the central call. 
In response to the gospel, Jesus came to bring his kingdom. Jesus came to establish his authority. Jesus came to provide forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. And the message that was being preached before his ministry began by John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus comes to the scene and he begins his ministry with this same message, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He doesn't, he doesn't start with all these commands to live good works. He doesn't start with, with all these commands to continue sacrificing animals and making a way for your, to cover your own sin. Repent. See that sin is destroying you and believe. Believe that Jesus Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. We hear it in the gospel call, the gospel message. God created. There's going to be four C's here. I want you to see it. God created. Everything was harmonious. Everything was at peace. Everything was the way God intended it. But man's sin brought the curse. Second C. Creation, curse. So now we live in a fallen, cursed world. And the reality is, is suffering and death are a reality as much as breathing our air is. But God sent his son to pay the cost by way of dying on the cross. Creation, curse, cross. He lived a perfect life so that his death would be sacrificial, so that it would atone, so that it would cover the sins of his people. And he promised a day of consummation, a day that he would return and he would take his people to be with him forever. How do we enjoy that eternal life with him in his presence forever and ever and ever? Repent and believe. Repent. It's the same thing as saying believe. Believe in him is the same thing as saying repent. That's how we enjoy it. That is the only and proper response to the gospel. Repent of your sin. Believe in your Savior. And you, if you haven't ever repented, today, I hope, will be the day. Repentance is the daily inclination of the faith-filled heart in his first thesis, as Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door at the Wittenberg church, as, he, as he's standing there and he's nailing that thing, he, 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 uh, his first uh, uh, thesis, the first, the first statement says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. We may not live a perfect life, but the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ is one of repentance. We cannot possibly go towards him while we're still going towards our sin. We cannot possibly be thinking on him while we're still thinking on and devoting ourselves to our sin. We cannot be believing his truth while we're still believing these lies. And so for every one of us, there's a moment where we begin repenting. That's the moment of conversion. That's the moment in which we step from death into life. 
But I appreciate Martin Luther because he points out that this is something we do every day in our fight to follow our Savior. We never quit repenting until the day Jesus returns. The day that our faith becomes sight and our sinful flesh is removed and we stand in his presence. That's when we quit repenting. That's when we quit believing because we don't have to exercise faith anymore. We can see him and we can touch him and we have been reunited to him and the promise of the inheritance, we have taken hold of it. Repentance is a daily inclination of our hearts together with faith. It's the proper response to God's gracious gospel. It is the twin grace of its brother, faith. It's the changing of our mind that leads to the changing of our heart that leads to the changing of our action. That is what repentance is. And so are you repenting? Are you repenting? The second thing I think we need to know about repentance is its source. As Jesus teaches this parable, he comes to this point. He says, speaking of this tree, it's grown for about three years. It should be bearing fruit by now. It's probably much, much, it's more mature than three years old, but at some point it should have started bearing fruit. And this guy's coming for three years expecting to find fruit and he doesn't find any on this fig tree. Fig trees, what are they good for if they don't give figs? You don't plant a fig tree because you want a shade tree. It might provide shade, but the purpose of a fig tree is what? Figs. Figs. That's right. I mean, come on. It's like an apple tree or a pear tree or an orange tree. Yeah, they grow on a tree. Sorry. There's this beautiful moment in this parable the owner of the vineyard comes in he's like man we just cut that tree down it's using up nutrients it's using up soil it's using up space let's just get rid of that tree it's no good and this vine dresser this vine dresser says no let's give it another year let me tend to it let me nurture it let me put fertilizer on it let me put manure on it you see the patient loving kindness of our savior How long has he pursued you before you began repenting? I was 21 years old. I was telling lies about my Savior, trying to justify myself in the eyes of people. And he confronted me with the truth one day. And I truly became repentant. He gave me 21 years. Some of you, he may be giving even longer than that. But we see this gentle, loving kindness of a vine dresser, ensuring the roots get the nutrients they need so that they can bear the fruit that's expected. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what happened with this fig tree. We don't know whether it ever started bearing fruit or not. We don't know if in a year it got cut down or not. But you can be sure of this. If it bore fruit, it was not simply because it was a fig tree. It was because this vine dresser took the time and the tender care to ensure that it could bear fruit.
So what is the source of repentance? Repentance is the result of God's merciful and gracious regeneration of a fruitless heart. So if you're sitting in this room and I can ask you the question, are you repenting? And you can say, yes, that is not a reason to gloat. It is not a reason to look down on other people or to think that they are less than you or they are more uh, deserving of condemnation and death than you. It is not a reason for you to pick up your nose and look or pick up your chin and look down your nose. It is not a reason for us to brag and boast. It is a reason to praise our God who didn't immediately spite or smite us in our sin. So we praise him. Well, what if you're unsure? How can you know? How can you recognize the fruit? Like, what, what, what's the way that we do a fruit check, right? Like, how do I, what, what's, what, what does fruit mean? Because I'm not bearing any figs. Like, I'm not making figs, right? So what does it mean? Like, how's he, how do we look for this fruit how is he going to know it if he sees it? Well, he's God. He'll know it. Let me give you this principle, and then we're going to, I'm going to give you just five or six quick things. Repentance is always made evident by its fruit in the lives of the repentant. Now, you may not bear figs, but you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is, we can see it all across the scripture. I would encourage you to go, go to, don't do it now because I already told you to turn your notifications off. But when we're finished, if you have not followed us on Facebook, go to our Facebook page. There's a link there that's all the notes that I've given here. There's Bible verse after Bible verse. I just, I'm going to hit these real quickly. How can you tell there's spiritual fruit, that there's fruits of repentance alive and well in you? There's an increasing evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? Did you get that? You want to write them down? I might have said it wrong, so I said it fast. There's an increasing evidence. See, we don't become loving because, oh, well, the Bible says that that's the fruit of the Spirit, so I'm going to work on love. We don't become joyful because we work on joy. We become these things because we become repentant and we leave the way that we used to live and we follow the Spirit. We walk in the light of the Spirit under His influence, walking with Him. We walk in repentance and so we bear the fruit of God's work in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. There's an increasing evidence of His fruit in our lives. Obedience to God's commands. We become more obedient and more obedient and more obedient. This is not something we did once, like I followed this rule one time and now. No, we put away the old ways. We put away the things that were so that we can live in obedience to him. That passage I, I tell you about is 1 Peter 14, chapter 1, 14 through 16. A growing desire for God's glory expressed in daily worship. We got we to deal with this. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This is his work, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's our response, God's mercy, our presentation of our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. This is a progress, progression. This happens over time. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be being transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that's going to change your heart, that's going to change your action, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect more and more and more. You will be desiring his glory to shine more than your own. You'll desire a life of worship, not just moments of worship once in a while during the week. But I think this extends to others as well. When we really grasp this, when we really become repentant, it is not just about what we receive and about the glory we see. I think a repentant heart becomes an evangelistic heart, a heart that would tell others about this coming glory and warn them, care enough about them to warn them of the perishing that will come with a lack of repentance, not to condemn They're already condemned. But to give them the opportunity of real eternal life. This is an offering of something, not beating them with something. When we have this growing desire for God's glory, we'll long for others to see it alongside us. Our lives will become to be used as his purposes and his mission. Next, I would say there's a growing satisfaction in the eternal hope over these temporary trifles. This world offers us something, right? It's always temporary. Paul, Philippians 3, 7 through 10, whatever gain I had, he was Hebrew of Hebrew, Jew of Jews, like he, he had it all. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Repentance builds itself out in a life that's more concerned with the eternal than these temporary moments. And then I would suggest greater levels of repentance. See, there's a reality that there's possibly two kinds of people sitting in this room. One kind of person is hearing this call to repent and they're saying, yes, I'm a sinner. I need to repent and I need to grow and repentance. And I'd say, yes, you do. And so do I. There's another person, kind of person maybe sitting in this room who's bowing up their chest. Who's saying, who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner that deserves condemnation? I'd say I'm a person who loves you enough to tell you the truth. If you will not repent and believe you will perish. You won't just die. You will perish. And you're the very person that needs to respond for the first time ever. Repent. You are a sinner. And when you do, you will have eternal life. Jesus said it. If you will not repent and believe, you will perish. But if we are going to enjoy life eternally, it begins with living daily, repentantly. Let's pray. Father, you know my heart. You know my struggles. And several people in this room do. I would ask, Father, 
that by your spirit you'd move on, on us as a church. Not just a group of individuals, but as a church. And that you would call us to repentance. And you would show us the ways in which we are not yet repenting that we need to repent. You would open the eyes of those who have stood on religious tradition on some prayer they prayed as a child. Oh, Father, that you would call us into life via our repentance. And I pray, Father, for those, my brothers and sisters, who still struggle with the things of the world. Help us to see the truth Diminishing the lies. Help us to, to, to believe the truth and quit believing the lies. Help us to put away the error and begin clinging to the answers. Help us to see how destructive and devastating sin is so that we might pursue you and you alone. That our life would show ever-increasing fruits of righteousness that when you arrive, as it said in that parable, that when you arrive, that there would be figs upon figs upon figs because of the life of this church. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.